We've been waiting for you. Come on in. It's Talk 10 Tuesday with Chuck Buck and Dr. Eric Reamer. Today, we welcome the return of senior healthcare consultant and CDI expert, Colleen Deegan, who begins an exclusive three-part series on outpatient CDI. Do you feel that people around you are being jerks? You're not alone. Internationally renowned psychiatrist, Dr. H. Stephen Moffick is here to help you feel better about yourself and others. Senior healthcare consultant Lori Johnson has news on proposed ICD-10 codes. She'll fill us in on last week's Coordination and Maintenance Committee meeting. And Tim Powell is at the Tuesday News Desk. Now here's the publisher of ICD-10 Monitor and the host of Talk 10 Tuesday, Chuck Buck. Thank you, Clark Anthony. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the 453rd live edition of Talk 10 Tuesday and brought to you today by the ICD University Bookstore and Good Morning, Erica. Thank you, Chuck. Good morning, everyone. Well, at last, your good friend Colleen Deacon is our special guest. You know, we've been waiting to have her on the program for a long time, so she's here today. That's good news. I know. That's great news. We're very happy that Colleen is with us today. She begins the first of our three-part series on outpatient CDI. Indeed. Outpatient CDI is a very important topic, and it's one that our listeners have been asking for for quite a while. Yes, and Colleen has much to share with everyone. Also today, we invited Dr. H. Stephen Moffat to be with us. I don't know about you, but it seems to me like so many people around us are acting like jerks these days. Well, could be. The pandemic has brought about lots of anger. In fact, here's an ICD-10 code for anger and irritability, R45.4. It became effective last October 1st. Good to know. And you have a talk back segment this morning. What are going to be discussing? Uh, I'm going to discuss a COVID-19 code coming soon that we discussed at the ICD-10-CM Coordination and Maintenance Committee meeting. Very good. Looking forward, as always, to your segment. We have much news to report, and we begin with Tim Powell, who's at the Talk 10 Tuesday News Desk. The Talk 10 Tuesday News Desk is presented by MRA, the premier provider of medical coding, auditing, and cancer registry solutions. For 35 years, hospitals and healthcare systems have chosen MRA's 100% U.S.-based solutions for proven quality and expertise. Find peace of mind by partnering with MRA at MRAHIS.com. Here now is Tim Powell. Thanks, Chuck. And today I'd like to talk about what data the government compiles, particularly on physicians. From the time a doctor starts his or her first residency program, Medicare is compiling personal data on them. Hospitals claiming reimbursement must submit the following data on their cost reports. The name, the Social Security number, the date of medical school graduation, the medical school graduated from, and if the resident is a foreign medical graduate, the date that they passed their medical boards or what they call their ECFMG boards. The data is compiled in part because Medicare doesn't trust that the number of residents that teaching hospitals claim on their Medicare cost reports is valid, and they compare the, the, the data that's submitted in between different institutions to make sure that individual residents aren't counted more than one time. Medicare also compiles paid claims by Part B vendor, including physicians, and periodically reports paid claims volumes by code. Medicare also releases through releases the names and specialty of physicians through its Physician Compare database. A few years back, I was giving a talk to a group of cardiologists, and during a pause in the talk, one of the physicians angrily told me that I had hacked into the data of the practice. He demanded to know where I had gotten the data. He was shocked when I told him that all the data that I had presented was publicly available. 
So who actually uses the data? Well, mainly it's consultants like myself that use the data in order to help uh, to increase the, the profits and profitability of, of individual institutions. So if you're ever wondering if Big Brother is watching, yes, he is. And just remember to be careful. Thanks. And with that, back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Tim. That was Tim Powell. Tim is a compliance expert and an ICD-10 Monitor National Correspondent. It's Tuesday, it's March 16th. Today, the death toll from the deadly coronavirus stands at 535,000. You're listening to Talk 10 Tuesday. Stand by. Clinical documentation integrity plays a crucial role in getting paid correctly and improving patient outcomes. Proficiency in CDI starts with a solid foundation of education. From documentation and coding basics to anatomy, physiology, and special guidance with high-risk DRGs, CDI Education Bundles deliver the knowledge you need. Here's what you get. The popular handbook, Essentials for Clinical Documentation Integrity, and the on-demand webcast, Back to the Basics, Clinical Documentation of Five Common Conditions. Save a bundle when you order a bundle. Order your 2021 CDI Education Bundle at the ICD University Bookstore. Here now with the Talk 10 Tuesday Coding Report is Lori Johnson. Lori also has a Talk 10 Tuesday listener survey. Good morning, Lori. Good morning, Chuck. Good morning, Erica, and hello to our listeners. I hope that everyone enjoyed the Marathon Coordination and Maintenance Committee meeting last week. One surprising proposal was the consideration of doing code updates twice per year. That proposal generated discussion during the meeting as well as conversations after the meeting. And no, at least I had a few conversations about that. My focus this morning was to review the six proposals that were not discussed during the CMS portion of the meeting. All of these proposals are about administration of medications or substances, and all have requested a new technology add-on payment. One requirement of an NTAP is that the item has a unique code so it can be identified. The first substance is trilacilaclib. This drug is used for improving outcomes of patients who receive chemotherapy. It is a myelopreservative and functions to preserve the bone marrow. It has been used to treat small cell lung carcinoma. The second medication is Zepzelka, which is also used to treat metastatic small cell lung carcinoma. It is a second chance when platinum-based chemotherapy has not worked. The third drug is Enspiring, which is used in the treatment of neuromyelitis optica spectrum disorder, or NMOSD. This drug is given as a subcutaneous injection. The fourth drug is Siltacel, or Siltacabagene Autolucel. This drug is used as an experimental CAR T-cell therapy. It is used to treat advanced multiple myeloma. The drug uses the patient's own T-cells that are modified in a lab to recognize and destroy the cancer cells. The fifth drug is Amivanabab, which is an investigational fully human EGFR and mesokinal epithelial transition factor, or MET, which would be used to treat patients with metastatic non-cell lung cancer, which has progressed or after platinum-based chemotherapy. 
it is designated by the FDA as breakthrough therapy for this population. The last substance to review is pathogen-reduced cryoprecipitated fibrinogen complex, or PRCFC. This substance is produced from cryoprecipitation of cold, insoluble proteins from plasma that has been processed with the intercept blood system for plasma. It can be stored up to five days at room temperature. This substance has been used to treat massive hemorrhage. Now let's go to the listener survey. When thinking about the coordination and maintenance committee meeting from last week, I was surprised about, and how would you answer this question? The minimal new codes on COVID-19, or the new procedure codes, or changes in the process to expedite the ICD codes, nothing, or I don't care, not applicable, or other. So we'll return back to see how you answered. Erica, back to you. There cannot be anyone who doesn't care. Thanks, Lori. That was Lori Johnson. Lori is Senior Healthcare Consultant for Revenue Cycle Solutions, LLC. Chuck? <laughs> Thanks, Erica. And thank you, Lori, very much. And as Lori said, we're going to have the results of the Talk 10 Tuesday Listener Survey later in this broadcast. I got a question for you. Do you get a feeling that a lot of folks around you are acting like jerks? <laughs> well, you're not alone. There's plenty of pent anger going around these days, especially during the pandemic. So there must be a psychological reason for this, and that's why we asked our Talk 10 Tuesday resident psychiatrist, Dr. H. Stephen Moffick, to help us navigate our way among family, friends, and strangers who are, well, shall we say, angry. Help us out, Dr. Moffick. What's going on here? Yes, Chuck, what a year it has been. As we just passed the one-year anniversary, official anniversary, of our viral pandemic. But it is even more than that. It is a syndemic, adding on the synergistic pandemics of racism, climate instability, and opioid deaths. How to summarize it? In a world of tweets, couldn't it be done in one word? I mean, if the artist William Blake memorialized that the world was in a grain of sand, then why not? And that word may not be anger, Chuck, though anger is a crucial component of it and has been increasing. Yesterday was the Ides of March, the date when Julius Caesar was assassinated in Rome. So as the seer in Shakespeare's play prophesied, beware. Caesar could be a symbol for all the COVID deaths because some did not beware enough. Indeed, the prophecy may still be alive. Given that half of Italy just entered its third lockdown due to inadequate vaccination and new viral variants. Moreover, beware that daylight savings time changed the day before is associated with more accidents. How about EGAD, an old English word that conveys our collective unsettling emotional reactions of anger, affirmation, and surprise, which have been intertwining this past year? Take the anger part, which you mentioned, Chuck. It can be a normal and helpful reaction to events which seem to throw one off balance. It becomes too strong when it impairs functioning at work, in relationships, and physical health. Some have called this particular kind of pandemic anger, panger. There could be an ICD-10 code for EGAD, and, but it's not named EGAD. It is R45.89, other symptoms and signs involving emotional state. We've been discussing prolonged grief recently in connection to all these losses over the past year. 
And what is one of those stages of grief that one has to go through? Anger, once again. In some contrast to anger, there is affirmation, where one perceives a point of view like one's own. Often, we search in life for those like ourselves in important ways. When you feel your life may depend on others affirming your beliefs, that is a powerful contrast to anger, or a precipitant to anger when not fulfilled. That add on being taken aback by what has been so unexpected and uncertain this past year. No wonder that on March 11th, the headline article for Medscape was titled, quote, everything we thought we knew was wrong, end of quotes. I added EGAD and Beware to one of their examples as we scientifically learned more over the year. On March 2020, EGAD, no need to beware, masks aren't necessary. On March 2021, EGAD, Beware, and Where To. The useful intervention, centering, or sometimes called grounding. Joseph Campbell in The Power of Myth said, quote, there's a center of quietness within which has to be known and held. If you lose that center, you are in tension and begin to fall apart, end of quote. Find yours by such techniques as exercise, humor, journaling, meditation, naturing, and prayer. As we center ourselves to clear our mind, does EGAD or BEWARE or both seem to fit? With our help, can they evolve into Be Glad and or We Care for this coming year? Research on 3 million students would generally confirm that gratitude, as for the vaccine, providing some helpful slack to others, and improved sleep are the essential ingredients for future happiness. Back to you, Erica. Thank you, Steve. I'm grateful that you are here with us today. That was internationally renowned psychiatrist Dr. H. Stephen Moffick. Chuck? Thanks, Erica. And I might add that Dr. Moffick received the one-time designation of being a hero of public psychiatry, that from the Assembly of the American Psychiatric Association. Congratulations again, Dr. Moffick. Today we begin the first of our three-part series here on Talk to Tuesdays called Outpatient CDI. Here now with part one is our special guest, Colleen Deegan, and good morning, Colleen, and welcome back to Talk to Tuesday. We're looking forward to your exclusive three-part series here on Outpatient CDI. Let's begin. Thank you, Chuck, and good morning to all of you. As an industry, we've been talking about Outpatient CDI for some time now. Outpatient CDI programs can focus their efforts in a multitude of areas, from risk adjustment to denial prevention, medical necessity related to the next level of care, complete and accurate documentation for emergency department services, and quality measures, to name a few. A fall 2020 survey by ACTIS, the Association of Clinical Documentation Integrity Specialists, revealed that organizations continue to have a large interest in outpatient CDI programs. However, many programs are young or still in the planning stages. One area of focus that I believe an outpatient CDI program can add value is in quality measure reporting. As I was preparing a presentation in December on the AMA CPT coding updates and the Medicare Hospital Outpatient Prospective Payment System, known as OPPS, and the Ambulatory Surgery Center Payment System Final Rule for calendar year 2021, I read with renewed interest the requirements for the Hospital Outpatient Quality Reporting Program also known as the hospital OQR. For many years as a coding professional, my interest in CPT and OPP updates centered around the changes to CPT, the ambulatory payment classification and payment status indicator updates, the inpatient only list, 
the OPPS pass-through payments for devices, drugs, biologicals, and radiopharmaceuticals, et cetera. And I must admit, I had not really focused too much on the hospital OQR program. Although OPPS began in August of 2000, the hospital OQR program, mandated by, mandated by the Tax Relief and Healthcare Act of 2006, became effective for payment beginning in the calendar year 2009. The hospital OQR program is a pay for reporting quality data program for hospital outpatient services and requires hospitals to meet quality reporting requirements or get a 2% point reduction in their annual payment updates. Hospitals qualify for the full OPPS update factor by submitting required data quality, I'm sorry, required quality data for specific quality of care measures. Measures of quality may be of various types, including those of process, structure, outcome, and efficiency. In addition to providing hospitals with a financial incentive to report their quality of care measure data, the hospital OQR program provides CMS with data to help Medicare beneficiaries make more informed decisions about their health care. Hospital quality of care information gathered through the hospital OQR program is available on the CMS.gov Hospital Compares website. Currently, there are 15 quality measures that are included in the 2021 OPPS final rule for hospital OQR, including two outcome-based measures that were added in 2020. The two added measures focus on outpatient surgery and chemotherapy, areas identified by CMS as having common and frequent procedures in the hospital outpatient setting. For some of the measures, the data is abstracted from the medical record. Some of the measures, the data is captured via CART, a web-based CMS abstraction and reporting tool, and some of the outcomes data, um, the outcomes data is captured from hospital outpatient claims. The measures focus on high-impact services and support national priorities for improved quality and efficiency of care for Medicare beneficiaries. The patient is at the center of everything we do. The accuracy of the documentation, the accuracy of the coded data impacts healthcare organizations and patient care. As a coding and documentation integrity professional, we should know what's being measured and why, and how can we help. As an, can an outpatient CDI program incorporate some of these measures that require abstracting into their work responsibilities? Can an outpatient CDI program bring awareness of the measures and the data collected and provide it to the impacted clinical areas? Can an outpatient CDI program collaborate with the quality department to strengthen the data collected and reported? Quality reporting in some capacity is certainly something to consider for your outpatient CDI program. And back to you, Erica. Thank you, Colleen. That was fascinating, and I'm looking forward to the other two installments of your series. That was my longtime friend, Colleen Deegan, the consultant for 3M and an expert in outpatient CDI. Chuck? Thank you both, and be sure to read Colleen's report on outpatient CDIs in today's ICD-10 monitor. And coming up next, the results of today's Tucked in Tuesday listener survey. You are listening to Tucked in Tuesday. It's a broadcast service of ICD-10 monitor. Stand by. Increases in CMS risk adjustment data validation and OIG audits mean you'll need to double down on your HCC coding and clinical documentation understanding as you expect greater scrutiny on claim submissions. The best place to refresh your understanding of HCCs is in an upcoming webcast by Glorianne Bryant. 
During part two of this two-part series, you'll learn the basics. Accurate and compliant HCC coding can only happen with the strong knowledge of the basics of the Medicare Part C Risk Adjustment Payment Model. So register to attend this important webcast, Learning Made Easy for Risk Adjustment and HCC's Part 2, Getting the Coding Right. That webcast is Wednesday, March 24th at 1.30 p.m. Eastern. Register now to attend Learning Made Easy for Risk Adjustment and HCC's Part 2, Getting the Coding Right. Here now with the Back to Tuesday listener survey, once again, is Lori Johnson. Good morning again, Chuck and Erica. The audience agrees with you that they were surprised by the changes of the expedite process for ICD code. So that's good. Our audience is in agreement. But the rest of the survey is for minimal new codes on COVID-19, 21%. New procedures, 8%. Changes in the process to expedite ICD codes, 35%, nothing, 16%, and others that I don't care and not applicable, that's 20% as well. So some interesting results there. Now's the time for our very popular segment here at Dr. Tuesday. It's called Talk Back, and it features our own Dr. Erica Reamer. Dr. Reamer, what's on your mind today? One of the highlights of my year, and most definitely in this past year, is participating in the ICD-10-CM Coordination Maintenance Meeting. It was held via Zoom and recorded, so you can view it after the fact, although I don't think it's quite posted yet. I checked this morning, and the link still doesn't seem to have the recording on it yet. The code I am going to introduce you to is a code to supplement B94.8 sequelae of other infectious and parasitic diseases. Some of you may remember I have been suggesting a highly unorthodox approach to signify that the, quote, other infectious and parasitic disease, close quote, is COVID-19. I had been recommending using Z86.16, personal history of COVID-19, as an additional code despite the admonition to not do so from the AHA. The World Health Organization, uh, WHO, created the ICD-10 code, U09.9, which is being proposed to be adopted into ICD-10-CM without modification. WHO named it, quote, post-COVID-19 condition unspecified, close quote. And their note says, quote, this optional code serves to allow the establishment of a link with COVID-19. This code is not to be used in cases that still are presenting COVID-19, close quote. There will be an instruction to code first the specific condition related to COVID-19 if known, such as chronic respiratory failure, J96.1, and loss of smell and taste, R43.8. The expected implementation date is October 1st, 2021, and this is actually unusual, as Lori was alluding to, because all of the other codes were discussed, the implementation implementation date is really going to be um, October of 2022. So um, my comments to the committee were uh, as follows. Hooray for a way to specify which infectious and parasitic disease was the culprit. 
are you sure you can't get this one into the code book sooner? Inclusion terms need to include post-acute sequela of COVID-19, P-A-S-C, which is what I talked about last week, sequela of COVID-19, long-haul COVID-19, and long COVID-19. I recommended adding G93.3 post-viral fatigue syndrome as one of the code first conditions listed in their examples. And M35.81, multi-system inflammatory syndrome, which is that MS, uh, MIS, they need to add U09.9 as a choice for an additional code to signify COVID-19 linkage. In fact, I think it should outright replace the option that they have currently of B94.8, which is misleadingly referred to as sequelae of COVID-19. I also said that they should translate the note saying, this code is not to be used in cases that still are presenting COVID-19 into American English. What they are trying to convey is if a patient has a current acute active case of COVID-19, U09.9 cannot be applicable from the same infection. I'm concerned that it may be possible to have U09.9 from a previous COVID-19 infection and then get reinfected, perhaps with a different variant, so an excludes one note might not be optimal. I recommend that you look at the proposals reviewed on March 10th yourself and submit your own comments, and they're due by April 9th. It is interesting to note that WHO's ICD-10 has all its dedicated COVID-19 codes in the same vicinity. U08.8, I'm sorry, U08.9 is their personal history code. U10.9 is a specific MISC associated with COVID-19 code. U11.9 is the code they use for indicating a patient encounter for COVID-19 vaccination. And U12.9 specifies adverse effects from COVID-19 vaccines. We, in ICD-10-CM, housed our personal history code with other personal history Z codes and didn't create corresponding COVID-19 specificity for the other conditions that ICD-10 did. Finally, the AHA AHEMA COVID-19 FAQs, which were most recently updated on March 1st, have a question, number 43, relating to the documentation of post-COVID-19 syndrome. And the answer states that this was not indicating linkage, but temporality. In my opinion, a provider who documents post-COVID-19 is trying to convey causality and not a time reference. So I suggested that post-COVID-19 syndrome be included in the U09.9 inclusion terms as well. It is really amazing to be living through this time. Codes are being developed and rolled out in record speed. However, I hope we never get to experience it again in the future. Once has been more than enough for me. How about you, Chuck? Yeah, I certainly agree with you. Once enough is uh, plenty for me as well. Thanks, Erica, very much. Now let's answer some of the questions that have been coming in, okay? Yes, and we get a question from our friend Ron who says, why can't new codes be added when they are needed? Why even wait six months? Doesn't the bureaucracy get in the way of progress? And I have to tell you, Ron, I actually 
was thinking the same thing. And then during the um, the committee meeting, they actually explained the issue. And the issue is, there's a lot. Uh, do you remember when um, when we changed over to ICD-10 from ICD-9? Remember how much, how how many different um, computer systems and, and interfaces and all those things had to be updated. So that's part of the reason. They need to make sure that um, codes get added in and um, make sure that everything is right and up to speed before they actually, um, you know, go live. Lori, did you have something else to, uh, to say about that? Yes, uh, we have um, obviously software that needs to be updated, but also remember with ICD-10, we have books that need to be updated and it's not possible to print a new book every time a new code is is entered. That would be really expensive. So that's another thing to consider, as well as all of the medical policies that need to be updated as well. I wish it could be done instantaneously. We all live in this day and age of we want uh, immediate gratification, but unfortunately there is some lag time, and we were lucky that we were able to get our ICD-10 CM COVID-19 codes as quickly as we were So I think we're just going to have to hang on for a little bit longer. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, and we will hang on just a little bit longer, but this is going to be a wrap for this edition of Tucked In Tuesday, and we thank you very much for being with us today. I want to thank our panelists, Lori Johnson, Tim Powell, Dr. H. Stephen Moffk, our special guest today, Colleen Deegan, and as always, our co-host, Dr. Erica Reamer. Until next Tuesday, I'm Chuck Buck, reporting for ICD-10 Monitor Tucked In Tuesday. And be with us next Tuesday for part two of our three-part series on outpatient CDI. Thank you again, everyone. Have a great week. Talk 10 Tuesday is a production of ICD-10 Monitor.